presence very, very cleanly, very deeply, very closely. But there is something beautiful about being around people who also are wanting the same thing you're wanting, which is to draw close to God. And that's, if you experienced something this morning, that's what you experienced. It wasn't the music. It wasn't the piano or the guitar. It definitely wasn't the singing, right? It was God. It was the Holy Spirit fulfilling his promise to, to when the two or three are gathered together in his name, he'll be in the midst of them. And we got more than two or three here that are gathered for the right reason. And so God blessed us with his presence, and I pray that he will continue to bless us now as we look in his word, and that his presence would not exit, and that you would not push him away at this time, but that as we go into truth, we can now respond in a heart of humility after experiencing the closeness that he just gave us, respond to the truth that he gives us now. We're in our Bibles in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, we're going to be looking at 3 through 5 this morning. We had, uh, last week I was out of town on a marriage retreat, and so Pastor John uh, preached the message. I got a chance to hear it. He did a great job. I listened to it the other day. And uh, the Sunday before, uh, when I was here, I was preaching, I'm preaching through Titus, and I had preached on a charge to Christian men. That was in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and then picking back up again in verses 6 through 8. But there are some verses that we skipped over, verses 3 through 5, and I had told you a couple of weeks ago that today we would continue this small series in Titus on a charge to Christian women. So I'd like to read these verses. There's just three today, verses 3, 4, and 5. The aged women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be. All right, so verse 3 tells us that the, the mature women in our congregation, the ter- mature women of the faith, the, 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 the uh, veteran women of the faith, they have a task. Now, they are to have a good testimony, they are to be holy, to run from sin, to embrace holiness, but they have a, a very important responsibility, and that responsibility is to teach good things. Now, there's two things clarified here. First of all, we're told who is to receive the teaching of good things, and secondly, what those good things are to be. So the mature women, the veteran women of the faith, are to teach the younger women good things, and here are the good things. Verse 4 that the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. I had broken my message this morning from this text into three points. The mature women. I mean, I figured if I called the men, aged men, mature men, got to do the same for the women, right? Not going to call you aged women. Yep, some of you ladies are like, yeah, you better. Okay, it's the mature women. The young women and the married women. Obviously, not all women in this room are married, but this text still has a lot of truth for you. Obviously, not all members in this church are women, but this text still has a truth for you. Just as all Christians could glean some truth from the message I taught two weeks ago on a charge to Christian men, while specifically the text was drawn to men, there were basic truths that all can benefit from. The same is true today. Yes, the text is specifically given to women, veteran, mature women of the faith, young women who are starting that journey of faith, and women who have chosen the path of marriage. There is specific truths for all three of those women in this room, but some of these truths apply to everyone, including children and men. 
So let's take a look now at our first point, the mature woman. In verse 3, the Bible tells us that the mature women are to be acting, uh, their testimony should be reflecting behavior as becometh holiness. So holiness is essentially the opposite of wickedness. Holiness is the opposite of sinful living. The Bible gives us in the Old Testament uh, verse after verse, text after text, book after book of what God says is not okay, is not righteous, is not healthy, successful, is not godly. God calls it sin in the Old Testament. Now, there are some laws in the Old Testament that the Jews had to follow, not because it was a moral right or wrong, but because God was establishing a set of government governmental laws and a government system. And in those government laws and a government system, God says, I have health laws and I have interpersonal laws of how you deal with issues with your neighbor and if there's theft and things like this. But there were many laws in the Old Testament that were purely moral laws. That regardless of what government system you find yourself under, a monarchy or a democracy or a constitutional republic. doesn't matter if you're even under an anarchy. There are certain laws in the Old Testament that apply to all people at all times, such as thou shalt not kill. Now, that word kill should be uh, interpreted as more of a murder of the innocent, taking of innocent life than killing itself. And that has to be the case because God literally tells David and others to go and to kill. But to do so in battle, to do so in defense of the nation, to do so in defense of God's laws and God's righteousness. But killing the innocent was a problem. It's a moral problem. It's a moral sin at all times. In the New Testament, Christ takes it a step further and says, if you hate your brother or sister and in your mind and heart curse them and swear evil against them and desire their demise and desire their destruction, God says in your heart you've already committed murder. Another moral law in the Old Testament that God has given us that applies to all people at all times, not just under particular government systems, would be thou shalt not commit adultery. The act of sleeping with someone in an intimate way that is not your spouse, of course, is the the specific definition of thou shalt not commit adultery. But Christ took it further in the New Testament. And he said, if you look, and he says to men, if you look on women, but it's the same way, women, if you look on men, in a way that is lustful, with a desire to sleep with them, with thoughts that include that God, Christ says, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Now, there are some laws in the Old Testament, such as don't eat um, certain types of meats, you know, pork and, and certain types of seafood. But in the New Testament, Christ eliminates those. And he says, now all meat is optional for all people. Peter had a problem with that. Peter struggled with that because he grew up in a governmental law system that had health laws established in the Old Testament. And Christ says, well, you're no longer under governmental system. You're now under a church system. So we can eliminate some of those laws that were government-related, health-related. And now as a church, let's just focus on the moral rights and wrongs, not the health rights or wrongs, not the social necessarily rights or wrongs that deal with a government system, the moral ones. Let's focus on these. Now I want to explain this. Sin draws us further from God. Sin is what brings us to hell because we are sinners. That's why we go to hell. If you want to go to heaven and not hell, then something has to be done about your sin because it is sin that brings us to hell. So if something is not done about your sin, then you will go to hell when you die. There are a lot of religions in the world 
that tell us what can be done about your sin. Some religions just claim, well, you know, if you just do whatever you can, do your best, then God will look at your best and ignore your sin. Some religions say doing your best is not enough. You have to actually follow these particular guidelines. Attend this church, talk to this person, religious leader, priest, whatever it might be. You have to do certain things, sacraments or, 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 or uh, traditions. And if you do these, then God will not look at your sin and he will see you as holy because of what you did. It's self-righteousness, self-holiness. Now, some religions essentially state, that even before you go to heaven, you can become so holy that sin is eliminated from your life completely in this life. Some religions teach that. You can reach a place of nirvana, a place of, of spiritual perfection. Something has to be done about sin. A lot of different religions and a lot of different people claim they have the answer. Understand this. If you believe that something has to be done about sin, you better get it right. Because if you don't get that part right, then you're going to hell. So, with so many options available, with so many opinions and so many religions, which one has it right? That's the real issue, is it not? There are millions of people across the world meeting right now, and will meet later today, and have already met because they know something has to be done about sin. But these millions of people, all, many of them, have different opinions and different points of view on what must be done regarding sin. My strong belief is that the only one who has the answer is Christ. The Bible gives us the answer of what has to be done about sin. And you are a fool if you would go to a man or a woman and say, what must I do about my sin when the Bible already tells you? And you are doubly a fool if you listen to what a man or a woman tells you what must be done about sin when it does not agree with this book. The Bible tells us what must be done about sin. Listen to the Bible. The Bible will get you through this life of sinful destruction into eternal glory if you accept by faith Jesus Christ, his holiness, his righteousness, because you cannot be self-righteous. It's an oxymoron. You cannot be self-holy. That word doesn't exist in the Bible. Holiness only comes from Christ. So, women... If we're called to holiness as men are called to holiness, as children and teens are called to holiness, what does that look like? Christ said, be ye holy for I am holy. Holiness is not the outward action of following a set of standards, traditions, or being obedient outwardly to the law. The Pharisees were that, and Christ was not a fan of their life. Holiness happens inside. Holiness is defined within our hearts, not our hands. You can have clean hands, holy hands, and a wicked heart. You're not holy. But here's what happens. You have a holy heart and hands of flesh that still make mistakes. A holy heart and a mind of flesh that still dwells in a body of sin. You can have a holy heart and feet of flesh that take you places you should not go 
and you have regrets because of that, but the heart is holy. You say, Pastor Russ, how can that be? How can your hands sin and your mind sin and your feet sin and your body sin and your heart be holy? Because holiness isn't of you. Holiness is of Christ. Now, if you are holy, if your heart is holy, there should in time be something called the process of sanctification. If you are in holiness, connecting with God, your mind and your hands and your feet and your body will over time start to follow what is inside. But it takes time. It is usually not overnight. Holiness within the heart happens in a moment when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. You are holy. Holiness in a lifestyle happens over time. As you, in time, submit your mind and your hands and your feet of sin to the holiness within you, which is not you, but Christ in you, the Holy Spirit in you. As you, in time, submit the outward to the inward, you begin to reflect the holiness that you always had in Christ, which is why. This is to the mature women. You've had enough time. Ladies, you've been given the time. You've had the years, the decades. Some of you have been saved for decades. Why is the outward still not reflecting the inward? Why? Pride, rebellion, selfishness. You don't care. You didn't know. These are all excuses, and they're pretty poor ones. There is no good excuse for a woman who's been saved for decades to not have over time grown enough where the outward now reflects the inward. Letter A. When the young women look to the older women, for an example, what do they see? As I said two weeks ago, the Bible doesn't clarify an age bracket for aged or mature women from young women. It doesn't give us where that split off is. I believe it's more of a lifestyle than it is an age. I believe it's more of a choice than it is an age. I believe it's more of a maturity than it is an age. But at some point in a woman's life, she ceases to become a young woman and she becomes a mature, a grown, a fully blossomed woman. And I'm not talking that that happens at retirement. I would hope it happens far before retirement. A woman should be mature far before she exits the workplace. Maturity needs to be a fact of life. Because those who do not mature only self-destruct. Young women, teen girls, children... When they look to their moms, when they look to their grandmothers, when they look to their aunts, when they look to their teachers, when they look to the women in this congregation, what do they see? And what they see, does it reflect the holiness of Christ that supposedly dwells within their hearts? Or does it, after 30 years, still reflect the foolishness of a 13-year-old girl? Still reflect the foolishness of a 17-year-old, prideful, selfish young woman? The young women need to see what it looks like. Could it be that so many young women do not mature themselves because they do not have an example of what that looks like? Could it be that so many young women run from church, run from God, run from the Bible, run from truth 
and say, I'll find it on my own because when they look to the women in the church who are mature and should be reflecting what's within the heart, all they see is chaos personified and they say, the mature Christian women are worse than my friends who aren't even saved. The mature Christian women are bigger gossips than my 14-year-old friend. The mature Christian women live in constant discouragement, have no joy, have no peace, have no happiness, have no drive, have no vision, have no direction. Why would I want that? The young women think. You got to show the young women what they're fighting for. You got to give them a reason. And you say the reason is Christ. Yes, they see that you say that. And then they see what it looks like in your life, and they're like, I don't want that. <laughs> Whatever it is you've got, I don't want. And if you claim it's Christ, then I don't want Christ. Mature women. I've got four girls. I'm begging you, ladies, give my four girls illustration of what it looks like to live a holy life. Outwardly reflecting what you claim is inside. Show them, I'm begging you. It's not enough that my wife is the only one that shows them because as you know, children often learn more from those they don't live with when they get to that certain age. I accept that, I know that. My daughters love my wife, my daughters love me, but they're getting to a point where they need to see it from more than just my wife and I. When they were young, it was sufficient. It's no longer enough. My teen girls need to see it in the mature women of what the Christian faith looks like when holiness reflects the inside. Letter B. God does not allow his followers to weaponize their words. In verse 3, it says, not false accusers. That's gossip. That's making statements that are not true about someone else. Now, why would a mature woman even need to be told this? Why would a mature Christian woman who's been living the faith, who's been under the blood of Christ, who has embraced the Holy Spirit, why would a mature Christian woman need to be told, do not gossip? We understand young women. We understand young men. Mature women, mature men. Gossiping? Why is this even a thing? Because when we hit an age of maturity, we have lived many years. Otherwise, we have not gotten to that age of maturity. And those many years carry with it much pain. And mature women, if you have not found healing in the pain, your response is almost always going to be ungodly. And one of the biggest evidences of ungodliness is gossip. You say, Pastor Russ, that seems to be pretty extreme. Oh, is it? You know, consider this. Christ gives direction to the church, gives direction to his church about what's called church discipline. And that is basically direction to the church congregation of, of when they need to deal with sins within their congregation that would require them to say, you cannot be an active member in this congregation and still be living in this kind of sin. There's only a few things in the New Testament that seem to qualify for such an extreme action. And one of them is causing disunity in the church through gossip. It is literally so extreme in God's eyes that he says it, des it deserves and requires church discipline when done in the church. Gossip. God takes it pretty seriously. Mature women, you are mature 
because you've been through a lot. Going through a lot doesn't make you a good person. Going through a lot just means you have a lot to learn from. If you didn't learn from it and you only hurt through it, you probably find yourself talking bad about people on a regular basis. Because in our pain, we lash out. In our hurt, we only hurt others. And gossip is the easiest, quickest, best way to hurt someone else without doing something in what your head would be called extreme. Without doing something that would bring you to a place of being arrested, going to prison. You could do it, it's legal, and it causes a lot of pain. And a lot of women have figured that out. A lot of Christian women have figured that out. And the young women see the mature Christian women only hurting through gossip. It's not just a woman problem, is it? It's a man problem, too. And then also gossip. Teens and children also gossip. It is a sore, a festering sore within God's church. I'm not saying this church, all right? Look, if I felt like it was a problem here, you and I would have had a conversation, okay? I'm not going to let that go. So if I haven't talked to you personally about it, then I don't know about it. Now, just because I don't know about it doesn't mean it's not happening. It just means I don't know about it. If you're feeling any kind of guilt or conviction, that is God. That is not me knowing something that I shouldn't know. If God's convicting you, man, woman, child, teen, about gossip, understand it's a festering sore that needs to be lanced, eliminated completely, and allowed to heal. It cannot continue or it will grow. Mature women, God calls us to not weaponize our words. Our words need to be truth spoken always in love. Letter C, those who have taken the path should assist those who are starting the path. (laughs) It is not enough to get through the difficult years of youth, to get on the side of strength and maturity and say, I'm still standing. That is not the end game for the Christian woman. But instead to say, boy, that path was hard. I'm going to go back on that path and now walk it again with someone else and get them here. All right, yeah, you good? Good. Let's now both go back and let's do it again and at least each of us take someone else. Now there's four of you and walk them back. You could? Now, you can only do that so many times in your life, right? At some point, you're going to die. At some point, you're going to age out on that. But until that time happens, God calls the mature women to not jump up and down with joy and ask for a medal and say, I'm first place, where's my box to stand on? God calls for the Christian mature women to say, once you've traveled that journey, go back, find a young woman, and walk next to her in it. I'm not going to ask how many of you had a woman of faith walk you through your journey. I would imagine and hope some would say, yes, I have. And you are so very grateful that she hurt with you when she did not have to. That she essentially re-experienced your pain when she did not have to. I'm also going to state that some of you never had that woman. And the path you took was much harder than it had to be. It did not have to be that hard. God did not intend it to be that hard. God's intention was that a mature woman of faith walk it with you. They did not. And some of you have friends and sisters who started the path, started that journey of faith, and walked off the path. And to this day, they have not returned to the path. Why? 
there was not a mature woman of faith who was willing to walk with them, and they didn't make it. Look at our church. We have a church full of young men and women. They're taking that path for the first time. We have a church full of mature women of faith who have grown strong through their experiences. And I'm imploring you, ladies, go back. I know it's going to hurt. It hurt the first time. Go back and help someone who's hurting now. Teach them the good things. Get them through that part of their life so they do not destroy their children along the way. So they do not destroy their marriage along the way. Being a mature woman comes with a lot of advantages. You care a whole lot less about what people think. You are who you are. You've established that. There's not as much chaos in your mind. But it also comes with a lot of responsibility. Go back. There's young women who need help. Number two, the young woman. We're going to pick up now in verse 4. What are the young women supposed to be taught to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands? Now, these verses, 4 and 5, I've split up into young women and married women. Some of these things that the mature women are to advise the young women are are for generally any woman of any age, and we're going to put that under young women. But some of these things are obviously only designed for women who are married or who have been married and have children, single moms or married moms. So we're separating those two. Let's talk about the young women first because we've got young women in this church congregation who are not married, who have no children, and that is not a second place, second class of citizenship in God's kingdom, in God's world, in God's word. A woman is a woman is a woman, whether married or not, whether with children or not. God loves all of us equally, and there is not a higher or lower position in God's church based off of marriage status. But there are still some things a mature woman can help a young woman with, even when she's not married. And the first one being this. The world offers many opportunities to distract from eternity. And we find in verse 4 that the mature women are to teach the younger women to be sober. What does that mean? Well, we've seen it in other passages of Scripture. God commands the men to be sober as well. God commands the pastors and deacons to be sober. I told you, pastors and deacons are not a step above all other Christians. Pastors and deacons are supposed to be leaders who are doing what all Christians should be doing. Soberness is one of them, and that has the idea that you are able to see clearly what is going on. Because when you are drunk, you don't see clearly. When you are high, you don't see clearly. When you're in a state of euphoria, emotional euphoria, you do not see clearly. Those that are sober see clearly. And what is it that we're supposed to be seeing clearly? Christ. His face, his heart, his kingdom, his home. Which he tells us is also our home. We are to follow his heart, to be his hands to reflect his face. There are so many things the world is throwing at our daughters, at our sisters, at our wives, to distract from the clarity of God's kingdom and our eternity. The world says, how do you look today to our young women? 
The world says, what do you have today to our young women? The world says, what do you feel today to our young women? The world says, where are you going today to our young women? The world is constantly trying to lure our young women away from our God. And it is the mature women that say, oh, no, no, I've been down that path. You don't want to go there, believe me. It ain't worth it. And any men you find on that path, they aren't worth it. This is the path. This is where you find the men next to Christ. This is where you find joy and peace next to Christ. The young women need to be reminded there is a God. He has a heaven for us. And his kingdom on this earth is moving forward. And he asks us to be part of it. Sober. When the world gives every young woman a phone with access to the world, God asks the mature women to give every young woman a Bible with access to his truth and to teach them through it. Letter B. Be careful that a multitude of thoughts do not turn into a multitude of words. We're told that young women are to be sober. Let's jump now to verse 5. To be discreet. Just as the mature women were not to be false accusers, gossiping by accusing others of lies in order to destroy them, to have vengeance on them, to, uh, to pass on their pain to someone else, young women are to be discreet. Now, they're not the same, but they are similar. I've told you, I feel like gossip on that level for the mature woman is often a, a, a response or reaction to their own pain, to, to the to chaos around them, to their own experiences. Young women don't usually have as many bad experiences as a woman twice their age because of the time that's not available. Young women can hurt. Young women can be attacked. Young women can gossip. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. But discreetness has the idea of think before you speak. Have some self-control on the words that come out of your mouth. A young woman, as a young man the same way, often doesn't consider the impact their words have on the people who hear them. Every man and woman does that which is right in their eyes, and every young man and woman often says that which is right in their eyes. Except their eyes don't have enough experience to know what is right often, and so what they say isn't actually true, helpful, kind, or loving. And they say it anyways. But mature women... How can you teach the young women to have self-control of their words? How can you teach them to be discreet and to consider what they say and to not just say it because they think it? How can we do that, women, when we are false accusers ourselves? It's not just the young women that need help in this area. It's the young men. Young men get themselves in a lot of trouble, often more from this than they do this. A lot of young men and young women have found themselves shipwrecked at an early age from this and how it was used towards their parents, towards their family, towards their coach, towards their teachers, towards their friends. And now they don't have a coach. They don't have friends. Their teacher ignores them, and their family can't wait for them to leave the house because of this, how it's used. Mature women teach the young women just because you have a multitude of this does not, need any, does not mean it needs to become a multitude of this. Letter C. A woman's greatest beauty 
is not established in her sexuality, the way that she uh, defines her body and displays her body, either good or bad. She's not, her, her beauty is not in that. Her beauty is defined and rather in her spirituality. Verse 5, discreet, we're told, chaste. That word chaste has an idea of, of, of moral, upstanding moral character, pure I'm not saying that a young woman needs to have clothing from the neck to the toes. The Bible actually never clarifies what that looks like. The Bible does not give a standard of, of clothing a woman should wear. The Bible only says a few things. The Bible says women should not dress in a manner that defines them as a man. And that does not mean pants. That just means women should dress in a way of that culture that culturally would be feminine. And the Bible says women should dress modestly. Now, let me explain what that means. A lot of churches claim modesty is this to this. The Bible doesn't say that. That word modesty actually doesn't refer to how much skin is shown on your body. The Bible defines it and actually clarifies it as it's not about you. Basically, a woman who dresses modesty doesn't, it means they don't want to walk in the room and everyone look at them like a model and walking down the aisle, you know, prancing around so that everyone sees them. You can dress in a way that is beautiful, that is pretty, that is attractive. You can dress in a way that brings confidence, ladies, and also dress modest where it means the whole world doesn't revolve around you and how you look and everyone needs to comment on how you look. You can dress in a way that when people see you, oh, that's nice, without drawing attention every time you walk into a room. There's, there's, there's both don't need to happen. So that word modesty doesn't mean never show your shoulders, never show your neck, never show your calves. That's not what that word modesty means. The word modesty means... Don't make the way you dress about you and everyone looking at you when you walk in the room. Especially when that word modesty is used about a church service, women should not walk into the church service saying, everyone look at me. They should walk into the church service saying, everyone look at Christ. Just as men should dress modestly. Dressing in a way where they walk in the room, it's not about me, it's about Christ. And you know, I think who some of the biggest defenders are this, I actually don't think it's women. I think it's pastors. I think it's the men up on the stage who come with their flashy outfits that cost thousands of dollars, and it's hard to think about what they're saying because you're looking at what they're wearing the whole time. And they wouldn't be caught dead in a pair of shoes that cost less than $1,000, and they wouldn't be caught dead in a suit that you bought at JCPenney's because those men need to look good. Now, they're not showing any parts of their body that would be immodest, but the Bible's definition, they're immodest because their dress is all about them. And yet they claim from the stage it's all about Christ, but what they're wearing doesn't seem to match that. I'm not saying men can't look nice. I'm not saying men can't or shouldn't wear suits if they're preaching. I'm saying modesty is about reflecting Christ, not yourself. That's what modesty is, biblically. Ladies, the world is telling your young women something opposite what I just said. The world is telling our young women that if you want to be a strong, independent woman, then your sexuality is a big part of that and how you display it, who you display it to. The world is trying to convince your young women that if they are not uh, dressing in a way that is pleasing to the eye of men, which is ironic because the world claims this wrong, but then they tell young women to do it. You know, don't listen to what they say. Listen to what they do. And the world is saying, women, it's not about men, but you need to dress in a way that's attractive to men. Like, what are you, are you seeing the, the, the contradiction here? 
The world is telling our young women that if they're not attractive to men, their worth drops significantly. And their worth climbs when they are attractive to young men. Mature women, you need to remind the girls of that lie. That true beauty comes from our spirituality, chaste, pureness, walking with the Lord. Christian morals, not our outward appearance. And then finally, number three, the married women. So going back now to verse four, there were some commands to teaching young women who also find themselves with the family to love their husbands, to love their children, keepers at home, obedient to their husbands. Let's look at letter A. We do not need to be taught how to like, but we do need to be taught how to love. You will naturally like or dislike people. No one needs to teach you how to do that. A child will like or dislike food. No one needs to teach them that. They will like uh, candy and they will dislike peas. Most children, most babies, right? So liking and disliking is a natural reaction to what we feel. Loving is a supernatural reaction to our connection to God. Mature women, don't teach young women what to like and not like. There's no biblical mandate for liking or not liking. You teach them who to love and how to love, what that looks like. Teach the young women the value of love, the power of love, especially those who are married with children. Because mature women, you've been down that path of postpartum. You've been down that path of depression, holding your baby, saying this is the most beautiful things in my arms I've ever had in my life. Why am I so depressed when I hold him? You've been down that path where your child at three years old, kicking and screaming, pulling away from you, Tears running down your face, and you say, I love nothing on this earth more than this child. Why do they cause me so much pain? Mature women, you've been down that path. Your teenager walks in the house and say, how you doing, honey? And they walk and go to the room, and you don't see them until the next day. You've been down that path already. The pain that it causes you, unbearable. And you went down that path, many of you alone, with no mature woman to hold you and hug you put their arm around you and say, we're going to get you through this. You've been down that path alone. You know what it's like to be alone. Why would you inflict that in another young woman? A married woman who doesn't understand. She thinks she's literally evil personified because she loves this baby so much and yet thoughts of suicide are running through her head and she says, how evil am I? Because no mature woman had the patience to go to her and say, it's not you. There's something happening chemically inside of you. This is not who you are. Let's figure this out. Counseling, prayer, medicine, medication if necessary. Let's, let's just embrace, and you will overcome this. This part that's in your head is not you. It's a lie. Those young women need a woman, not a man, not someone else's husband. Those married women need a married woman in their life, hugging them and holding them because they're confused about the emotions they feel towards their husband who they were madly in love with last year. Now they almost can't stand the presence of him. They're confused about why they feel this way. They're confused about how it could be so good and so bad so fast. And they need a mature woman to walk them through it. Let her be. God has strengthened the hands of men to build a house. 
and the hearts of women to build a home. The world would claim that a woman who stays home to care for her family is less of a woman. This is the same world that says never speak ill of women. The world would claim that a woman who chooses to be a keeper of the home has chosen evil. This is the same world that says give women a choice. Again, contradiction after contradiction after contradiction. The book of Proverbs chapter 31 tells us about a virtuous woman. This virtuous woman cared for her family, her husband, her kids, those in her home. But this virtuous woman was often outside of the home buying and selling. A homemaker does not mean you stay at home all day. A homemaker means you turn the house into a home. That's what it means. The Bible tells us that men are given uh, a stronger physical stature, that women are the weaker vessel. I believe that is not mentally, physic- not, not mentally, spiritually, or emotionally. I believe that women are the weaker vessel physically. Science proves that. The bone structure, the muscle mass, that generally speaking, the average man is of a stronger body mass than the average woman. And God says, men, because you are physically stronger, understand that a, a woman whose body is physically weaker, do not treat her in an abusive way physically. It's not that you're supposed to coddle the women in your life, men. It's not that your wife is some child, but don't be throwing her around the house. She's not your buddy. You don't hit her on the shoulder and say, how you doing? You treat her like the weaker vessel with, with tender love and compassion. So God designed men to have the stronger physique. And that is why you often, not always, often find men with a stronger physique doing the hard labor. There's not too many women out there building homes. Construction workers, they exist, I know. More power to them. Nothing wrong about it, nothing sinful about it. But generally, you find construction worker is a man's world. As is most of the trades, are a man's world. Nothing wrong about it. God designed it that way. It doesn't mean women are relegated to only be at home. What I said is what I believe right here. From Scripture, having read through the Bible, I believe this strongly. God gives men the power of the hand to build amazing things. Women can also build amazing things. I get that. But our strength is in our hand. The strength of the woman is in her heart. Can a single dad build a home? Of course he can. It's a lot harder for a single dad than a single mom. Can a woman be a construction worker and build a house? Of course you can. A lot harder for her than it would be for a man, usually. It comes natural for a woman to turn a house into a home. And so, mature women, remind the younger married women the power they have in their heart to take what is a unliving structure, four walls and a roof, to take that and to turn it into something much more, a home. Keepers at home. Doesn't mean you stay at home. It means you do what you're good at. And that the home that your husband and kids come to is not just a house, it's a home. And then number three, I have no doubt some of you women have been wondering what I would say about this. It's crossed your mind. What's going to happen at the end? Well, here we are. We've made it to the end. The Bible says in Titus chapter 2 and verse 5, obedient to their own husbands. There are plenty of congregations, plenty of pastors, plenty of spiritual leaders that would preach this as a subservient role. That a woman is to obey her husband in all things. The Bible doesn't say that. 
The Bible does say to submit yourself to her husband as unto the Lord, meaning that if there is any submission involved in the marriage, it is only submission that would lead towards godliness in the home. Only submission that authority has been given to their husband by God. Only submission in the home where submission results in a holy house, not a submissive house. Because women, if a young married woman submits to her abusive husband, all she's doing is enabling that abuse. And if she has children, she's enabling her husband to abuse her children. That is neither godly, loving, nor biblical. And a woman submitting to any kind of abuse is a lie. God, before he tells women to submit, paired in that passage, he says, husbands, love your wives. I'm not saying if the husband doesn't love his wife, the woman can do whatever she wants. Because in 1 Corinthians, we're also told, women, if you have an ungodly, unbelieving husband, to love him to Christ. So there is a responsibility when possible. A husband who's straying to treat him in a way where he wants to follow Christ because of how you treat him. There's a balance there. There's wisdom that's required. Sometimes, ladies, an abusive home you got to walk away from. Sometimes, uh, it, it, when I say abuse, I don't mean physical abuse, but if there's, if there's an emotional instability in the marriage, if we were to walk away from that every time, no one would be married ever. <laughs> there will always be moments of emotional instability. And sometimes we need to work through it. But there's sometimes where the emotional instability churns and results into constant emotional abuse, and again, you need to walk away. I do not believe this passage of Scripture is relegating women to a place of submissive obedience even under the most abusive of homes. I don't believe that. What I believe about this passage of Scripture is this. God wants strong women, not weak women. But you find your biggest strength in humility. Why is that? Because pride is all about you. Humility is all about others. Pride is full of self Humility is empty of self. And wives, when you empty yourself of yourself and focus on your family, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And now you have a strength that is not your own. You have a strength of God in your life. And when the Bible says women submit to your husbands and women obey your husbands, I want to remind the husbands, the Bible also tells us to submit to one another. I've said this many times. Almost every time I mention the passage of Scripture referring to women submitting to husbands, I mention it because it needs to be mentioned. Men, to whatever level you think your wife is biblically required to submit to you, that same word is used in you submitting to everyone else in the church. So if a man was to come to you and say, hey, be at my house tomorrow, mow my lawn, do you have to go there and mow the lawn? No. Because submitting to that other guy in the church is not submitting to him as unto the Lord. You're enabling this man to be abusive to you. That's not a healthy friendship. Now, if the guy comes to say, hey, man, I can't mow my lawn tomorrow. I was, real, I, was, I was curious. Do you mind helping me out? Like most men, it's like, dude, I'll be there. Maybe not tomorrow, but I'll be there. Like, you would do it out of love. When the man commands you, you're like, dude, that's not how this works. And yet the Bible commands us to submit to each other. Husbands, when you command your wives, that's not how this works. But husbands, when you go to your wives and say, hey, I really need help with this, your wife's like, I got you. I'm there. When husbands go to their wives and say, hey, I'm really hurting. I don't think I can take this next step alone. Your wives are like, hey, yep, I've got something going on in my own life, but I'm going to let that go, and I'm going to submit to your needs because I can, I can see you need it. I'm going to submit to it. I'm going to be there with you. 
That's how this works. We have multiple staff members in our church and school that submit to me on a daily basis. I don't try to force submission unnecessarily. I try to give my staff a lot of freedom to make their choices and to express their personalities. But there are times where I feel like they've stepped outside the boundaries that this ministry has set. And there are times where I have to go to them and say, hey, you do need to make this adjustment. And they're always willing with good attitudes because we've got some great staff with humble hearts. And they also know that when I come to them asking for submission, it's not because I think I'm better than them. But they've chosen to place themselves in a ministry that has boundaries to which I'm given the authority to enact those boundaries, and they submit to them. But I don't play that card every day. Husbands, if you are playing that card every day, you are destroying your marriage. And if when you play that card, you say you don't have a choice, you are destroying your marriage. Yes, God does call the wives to submit with humble hearts to the needs of their husbands. But they will want to do that when the husbands don't lord over them like a king in the castle. Having said that, young women who are not married, make sure you marry the right guy. You marry the wrong guy, and you will find submission and obedience to be nigh impossible. It's not about how he looks. It's not about his singing voice or his athletic abilities, ladies. It is about his heart. And if he doesn't have that, run fast and run far. <laughs> Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for a chance to be reminded of your truth as it relates to women. As we saw two weeks ago, specifically your word relating to men, now we see it to women I pray that we would not ignore the truth we saw, the statements that were given. I pray that we would not run from holiness, men or women, that we would not run from helping others who are on that path. But in humility, we would submit to each other. In humility, we would sacrifice our needs for others. In humility, we would go back on that path that we've already accomplished and help someone else take it themselves. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, I'm going to have Pastor John come up and give some announcements.